0: When I was uh, going through high school, I had a part-time job working at a grocery store called Foodland. I affectionately refer to it as Foodland the Dude Land because we made a song, all the part-timers, called Foodland the Dude Land. We used to sing it while we were stocking the shelves. And interestingly, there was a very strong us-and-them culture between the part-time staff and the full-time staff. There was a, it was very much us-and-them management and floor staff. A lot of organizations have this. I, many maybe all organizations have a very strong unfortunately us and them kind of conversation in the culture about about uh, the different management levels and so we used to do things as teenagers to, to, to try and you know um, validate ourselves and, and feel like we weren't being oppressed by this management who in our view saw themselves as very important and saw us as very expendable as high school students and uh, so because we kind of had this idea that they thought they were more uh, valuable than we were or whatever, that we kind of had a cordial hypocrisy. So we would smile and nod and be respectful when they were there. But then when they left, we used to do things like they'd leave the store to us uh, and they would leave uh, to go on their breaks or they would go for days away. And we'd get those balloons that would be around uh, the the store for various things. And I used to cut them and suck in the helium and then get on the intercoms and and call for people to come to the front. and, And we used to do that. And now the trucks would come in, and we would unload the trucks, and our warehouse was in the basement. And uh, so we used to call guys to the back, the newer workers to the back. And then when they got there, we would tackle them and wrap them in saran wrap and then send them down the conveyor belt to the basement. And sometimes we'd, we'd stop it halfway, and they'd be, like, crying out from the, you know, halfway down the darkness. And uh, so we just had all these, these things that we did. We used to have these races to, to see who could build their pop displays the fastest. And I'll never forget, this is back when you'd get your, your pop in glass bottles. And, uh, and uh, there was like, you know, the Orange Crush wave of 1993, you know, that stands out in everybody's mind because this cart tipped over because we were racing the carts. And, uh, and I don't know if you've ever heard the sound of, you know, many, many bottles smashing and, and uh, a, kind of a, a tidal wave of carbonated Orange Crush coming down this, this, uh, the aisle. But we would do all these things. And we would horse around and we would make displays in the basement of toilet paper and throw our knives at them, throw our case cutters, try to get them to stick in the toilet paper. Why did we do all this? It really was, it wasn't just about teenagers who were, you know, um, uh, irresponsible at work and goofing around. And although that, you know, that was definitely part of it, we had this underlying conversation like, they owe us, you know, you're not, you know, you think you're the boss of me, you're not the boss of me. Um, and we, there was an underlying kind of tone that you know you think you're better than we are. And it drove a lot of this kind of the crazy behavior that we did. When we come to Ephesians chapter 6, we're at the tail end of Paul's letter. I'm going to read verses 5 through 9 where he's talking about how the gospel transforms and changes everything. It changes all of our relating. Changes how we relate in the church creating a unity. Changes how we relate as husbands and wives creating a unity. Tra- changes the way we relate as parents and children creating a unity. Paul takes this gospel of what the rescuing grace of God has done in us, and he begins to show how we relate to power and authority differently. And, and you see that in the power and the authority of the church being in a serving mode. You see the power and the authority in the marriage being in a serving mode. You see the power and the authority in a, in a parent to children in a serving mode, in a loving mode. And here we see it again now as we come to vocation. And so I'm going to read this so that we can see uh, how it is that the grace of God sets our souls free in a fresh and a new way. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 5. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or he is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. This is God's Word. As we look to the the rescuing grace, doing a reforming work, here's today's sermon in a sentence. God's grace severs our identity from our work, and it unites it to Christ. So that our work is from freedom to God's glory, our work is not a burden to establish our own glory. And this is what we want to unpack this morning. How is it that God's grace has severed our identity from our work? How has God's grace united our identity to Christ? And then secondly, how is our work now freely to God's glory and not a means of establishing our glory? So let's look at this first thing, how how it has severed our identity from our work and uh, united it to Christ. Paul is writing this from prison. It's important that we remember that. Why would a guy who's writing a letter from prison decide to all of a sudden dedicate a chunk of his letter to talk about marriage and parenting, unity in the church, how we relate, and then, how, and then vocation, bondservants and masters? Why would he do that? I mean, it's fitting, in a sense, because he's speaking specifically to slavery here, which I'm going to get to in a minute. I'm going to unpack that and on all that means, but he's writing this from prison, and in his first three chapters, he's showing how grace is on display— and I've said this every week and I'm saying it again, the first three chapters of this letter sound like chains falling off. They sound like prison doors swinging open because of the rescuing, scandalous grace of Christ toward you that your sin is forgiven and everything is complete in Christ and you have an inheritance that's assured apart from your performance. The promises in chapters 1 through 3 are not hinging on how well you pull off chapters 4 to 6. It's done in Christ. That's what chapters 1 to to 3 sound like. So now, all of a sudden, as this letter shifts, this is Paul's way of saying, now that the chains have fallen off and the prison doors have swung open, don't go back in your cell. Don't go back there. Live and enjoy this freedom to God's glory. And it looks like this. And Paul starts to flesh it out. So in chapter 1, he he talks about this adoption. And, And so our adoption, being predestined to adoption, so apart from us, apart from our works, apart from anything, by grace alone, we've been adopted. And now he's saying, here's what living out that life of adoption will look like. So that's that rescuing grace, that reforming trajectory. If think about it this way. Adoption is a legal one-time event in a courtroom. But then you spend your lifetime living out the implications of that adoption as you start to Form, you know your values and the values of your adopted family so you have been justified by christ and that's done and that was a one-time legal event at the cross and you've been sanctified by christ and that's done and being done and it's a lifetime now of enjoying and glorifying god through the gracious adoption that was that was afforded at that one-time legal act at the cross so this is paul's premise He's not just in prison going, well, I got a lot of time on my hands, I think I'll write a lever, and I think I'll just, you know, give them some good tips on how to relate better in the workplace. This is actually being driven by something. It's not just managing behavior, it's actually relating to people with new hearts. Only grace can do that. God's law shows us what's required, but only God's grace can propel our hearts to actually desire what God's law requires. And so we see this, um is what Paul gives us. So, without your soul being anchored in grace, what Paul is actually asking these servants and masters to do is culturally ludicrous and humanly impossible. So, we have to be anchored back in grace for this to even, for this to even take root in our hearts, to actually produce anything. Because four times in four verses, I just read it, Paul says to the servants, relate to your masters like you would relate to Jesus. And then he turns around to the masters and in an unprecedented, you know, totally countercultural statement, he says, oh, and masters, you relate to your servants like you would relate to Jesus. There's huge implications for us as employers and employees, as business owners and as those who go to work and we work for other people. I'm going to get to that, but we've got to ground this thing in grace. Otherwise, it's just about trying to manage our behavior tomorrow on Monday when we get to work and we've missed, we've missed the glory of this gospel and we've missed where the true power is because the power for this instruction isn't in the instruction it's at the beginning of the letter remembering you're living under this glorious banner that says everything is done and you're living from this place of freedom and what does that propel in our hearts so there's a cultural backdrop here and i'm going to give it to you really quick because he's saying servants and masters in 2016 that's really offensive language for us but we need to understand the context to see how beautiful it is this actually is so under Roman law, under the emperor Gaius, uh, Roman law says this, a slave is a thing to be owned, bought, sold, not a legal person. I'm getting that from historian G.W. Bromley. Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, Aristotle writes this, which was in play at the time. A slave is a living tool, just as a tool is an inanimate slave. So then between 140 B.C. and 70 B.C., you've got all of these slave um, Uh, uh, revolutions under Spartacus and other insurrectionists. The slaves are rising up against Rome because they want this, because they're being oppressed. They're being treated like inanimate objects, right? So Paul is now writing about 200 years after all of the, after Spartacus, you know, does his thing. This is just Roman history. Paul's now writing, and there's been a lot of reform in, in how the slaves were treated. And when Paul is writing this, it's actually quite close, closer than you would be comfortable thinking about, But it's actually the slavery that Paul is writing to here is actually quite close to our uh, modern-day employment scenarios. I'm going to give you a couple quick examples because we don't think about this. Because when we think about slavery, we think about how oppressive it was, which it was, how abusive it was. We think about the African slave trade and how inhumane it was. And all of those things are true, and they're horrific, and they're horrible. Uh, But you need to understand what was happening when Paul wrote this because it's going it's to help you uh, see the glory of Christ's grace. So under that backdrop, Paul writes all this, there's about 60 million slaves in the entire Roman Empire. I'm getting this from William Barclay, who was a historian of Roman antiquity. So that's 60 million slaves, but they had very low and high positions. Some slaves owned property, some slaves owned other slaves. It was really, it had become a part of the economy. It was a part of a way that a person could actually um, become economically independent. It was now, kind of, had been reformed in the system to be this way. Some slaves were very educated, others weren't educated, and most of the people in Ephesus were slaves. So Paul is writing to a room where most of the people in the entire church are slaves, and very few of them were owners. And that is not unlike the church in Kitchener-Waterloo, whereby if you go to preach in any church this Sunday morning, most of the people in that church are not business owners, most of the people in that church are working for somebody. And very few of the people are those that are the, are the owners. And that it's, it's, uh, it's similar. And you say, well, Paul, I don't know. It's not the same. And, and, uh, but here's what I need to encourage you so that we don't get into chronological snobbery, to borrow C.S. Lewis's term. We say, well, we're not slaves. I don't like this as offensive language to talk about slavery. Okay, well, in, prepar- in preparation for the sermon, I did some research on Stats Canada, and I was reading the Globe and Mail, on the financial scenario in Canada, and here's what I discovered. Canadians outspend every single G7 country. For every dollar a Canadian earns, a Canadian spends $1.65. And the national debt, by the time this sermon is over, is going to increase by $3 million, because it increases $3 million an hour. $80 million a day. So, we need to understand... (laughs) That just like Ephesus, they were slaves in one scenario where they were not owners. We very much are slaves in a different scenario. And if all of our identity and our validation is coming from, from our work, the work that we do, the work that we don't have, the work that we wish we had, our, that we are business owners in a thriving community of the quantum valley, you know, the quantum valley of North America, Kitchener-Waterloo, the epicenter of, of thought, where we attract to our universities from, the, from all around the world those that want to come into our engineering programs. If all of our validation is in that, and all of our validation is in our work, or, or what we're going to do, or, or, or you know, we're going, to, we're going to end up in this place of clamoring after identity and all these things it's going to cause for our souls to be always at unrest because it's never enough. And in the same way that I was doing all kinds of silly things as a high school student because my validation was wrapped up in feeling like the management thought they were more valuable than I am so I sent people down the rollers wrapped in saran wrap. You're going to have your version at work of wrapping people up in saran wrap because it's about the validation you're not feeling that you're getting. Or if you're an owner, you're going to fall into the same trap that all of us could fall into because of our sinful nature, where you're going to think that your higher position of education or your higher position in the company actually means you have a higher position of value. And then when we come into the church, we bring those kind of cultural sinful presuppositions in here. But then Paul says a radical thing, because guess what? If most of the church was slaves and very few of the church were owners— That actually means that the elders and the deacons were probably slaves more than owners Which means you had better have your identity in Christ when corporately speaking You're running the show and then coming into the church You're being told where to park your car where to sit or where to stand or where to whatever By somebody who by all cultural standards is your slave But you see when our identity is in Christ All of this stuff evaporates very quickly because both the owner and the servant are relating to one another with a respect and a dignity and a love because their identity is not wrapped up in who they are. Their their identity is wrapped up in whose they are. And it creates a culture of love and compassion, not comparison. This is the beauty of the grace. This is how God's grace severs our identity from our work. And then it unites it to Christ. Now, Now, the... According to Barclay, this this historian, almost 50% of the slaves, according to the transcripts that we have of Roman antiquity that you can kind of study and read, about 50% were actually released from their slavery by 30 years old. 50% in the Roman Empire by this time. Because they were able to own property and land, and a lot of slaves, they, you know, they didn't... It's not it wasn't all the oppressive slavery that we imagine, And I'm not trying to belittle it like it wasn't horrific, because it was horrific in many cases. But you need to understand that by this point in history, slaves were going to work and going home. Okay? It's just they were called slaves. The word, the word master that Paul uses here in the Greek is the word kurios, which is the same word for our Lord Jesus, our Lord. So the word kurios doesn't mean the one of hostile domination and violence. The word Lord means the one who's in authority. If you're a manager at work, you're, you have authority. So by, in Paul's language, you're a lord. If you own a company, you're a lord. You're a master. And so Paul is using language, and then he, he, he's using wordplay because he's like, hey, masters, treat the servants like Jesus because you have a master. And he's doing it on purpose because he's, cu- he's cutting across the culture that says these, these are not people, these are objects, and Paul is saying, you're the earthly master. You're, you're, not, even the, you're not even the real master. You're the earthly master. So he puts, he puts in the Greek this little phrase you see it earthly master, or, or your translation may say, um, uh, uh, of the flesh, sarka, kata sarka in the Greek. It means of the flesh. And Paul is very specifically saying, these are not objects. These people have souls and spirits, and you don't own those. One of the criticisms of Christianity is, well, Christianity didn't, didn't abolish slavery. Yes, friends, it did. When you study history, in the in the grand scheme of things, this Christian ethic was against every... Aristotle wasn't writing, you know, this level of dignity. Gaius wasn't writing this level of dignity. Paul here in Ephesians, he says, you treat, if you're a master, you treat that servant like you treat Jesus. And then in Galatians, he says, well, there's neither slave nor free. And then in Philemon, spoiler alert, if you've never read the, the, the letter to Philemon, Philemon was a Christian slave owner. And the whole letter is about Onesimus who's returning to him, who stole something from him, who left. And Paul writes to Philemon and goes, hey, I know the culture says you're a slave owner. I know the culture says you can kill this guy, but I'm telling you, you don't even get to relate to him on, his, on the standard of slavery. You have to relate to him like a brother in Christ because he's in Christ. So his identity is not in his slavery and your identity is not in being a master. Both of you have your identity in Christ and the ground is level and when Onesimus gets there, you better receive him back. Love, Paul. And this Christian ethic of unprecedented equality, millennia ahead of its time, ended up coming to bear in in uh, in uh, eighteen uh, or sorry in 1784 when William Wilberforce comes to faith in Christ, and then in 1786, two years later, William Wilberforce goes in you know full bore against the abolition of of slavery and the in the African American slave trade. Why? Because he had a Christian worldview that said these are people; they're not tools. They're, they're image-bearers of God. You see, the Christian worldview, based on the grace of the cross, caused slavery to implode from the inside. And if Paul had stood up and said, that's it, you know, let's, let's abolish slavery, yeah, when he wrote the book of Ephesus, the entire economy would have collapsed, including the slaves themselves, because they had no way to buy the, their way out of slavery. So this was the, this was the trajectory, trajectory of all this. But why am I saying all this? Why am I giving you... I'm not just giving you a history lesson. I'm telling you this because only the grace that rescued us can cause our hearts to relate to people in a different way. Otherwise, we're just managing our behavior. We're not relating to people with new hearts. On Monday morning when you go to work, and the way that you relate to everybody there, it's not just manage your behavior with a christian ethic that says you know show them dignity anybody can do that any anybody is everybody is trying to do that just managing their behavior to relate to somebody with dignity and respect you know that's the that's the message of tolerance and it's and that aspect is is a fantastic message because it benefits the city when those who share completely different worldviews can relate to one another with love and respect and dignity dignity so everybody is calling for this but it takes grace to not just manage your behavior towards someone but actually feel differently towards someone I mean to look at that to look at that individual and to actually feel and emote a feel of, of love and grace and charity and, and empathy for their pain and their hurt and their struggle i mean that's different than just saying i'm going to just manage so you can see we're desperate for grace aren't we because this is what paul's calling for he's not just saying behave a little better on monday and so when i read this i'm like i need god's grace because i don't know about you but this preacher has a nasty habit you see i'm a habitual sinner okay every single day i sin every day before this day's over i'm going to sin again if that bothers you you should find a church with us with a sinless preacher and i'm I'm sure there's a lot of self-proclaimed sinless preachers, but let me tell you something. Every day, I think I'm better than someone, I think I'm worse than someone. Do you? I mean, every, without fail. I can't go a day without in thought or word or deed, which is why our confession at the beginning of the service says what it says. I can't go a day without thinking I'm, somebody's, I'm better than somebody, hearing a story and going, I'm so much better than them. Or hearing another story and being like, oh my gosh, I am such a worm, I am nothing compared to them. You know, basically like every time I listen to a Tim Keller podcast, that's how I feel, right? I should just pick up and move and go to his church. Idolatry (laughs) to Tim. So this is my struggle. And so we need God's grace so that our identity gets separated out of our work and linked to Christ so that we're relating to each other with this kind of this grace and and this dignity. Let's move to the second, the second part of this sermon that we get from Paul's text, which is, how is our work actually freeing us to God's glory, and how is it not a burden to establish our own glory? Well, everybody, everybody desires a meaningful life, meaningful life. Um, I had a conversation with somebody this week who was, a, who was very skeptical about battling, struggling with skepticism of the Christian faith. And so I said, let's, let's get it out of the ontological argument of, you know, where did we come from, and let's move into this epistemological argument of what's real truth. And if, if, even if we answered the question of origins to everybody's satisfaction, um, the next question everybody's going to ask is, well, what's, what gives life meaning, then? I mean, there's so many deep philosophical questions. Everybody wants meaning, meaningful work, meaningful—not necessarily more. Many, many of us struggle with wanting more, but a lot of people aren't struggling with wanting more, necessarily, as much as it's meaning. They they crave it. Why? Because since the garden, we've got an eternity-shaped hole in our hearts. When man sinned, the temptation was you can be God. Right? I know in English it reads you can be like God, but in the Hebrew, it's it, there's no indefinite article in there. It just says you can be God. This is the offer. Right? And so since the garden, we've wanted to be God, and that's created this constant craving, and so nothing satisfies, so there's, there's no meaning. It's not enough. Um, you know, and so... All of us kind of crave this, and but there's a part of wanting meaningful work that's quite good and pure, and it's that God has given you gifts, and those gifts are good, and they're irrevocable, and they're beautiful, and it's because you're an image bearer, and you reflect him, and when you use your gifts, and you're kind of banging on all cylinders, you know, that's that beautiful place of feeling like, oh, I'm glorifying God with the way that he created me, and that's, that is good and beautiful and good, but when our identity is connected to our work, instead of it being a good thing, it ends up being an ultimate thing, We end up worshiping the ultimate thing, and then it ends up being an exhausting thing because it can't actually satisfy us. And so, uh, you know, I think earlier this year at the Golden Globes, Jim Carrey gave this really insightful speech. I'm going to read part of it. This is what he says. He says, Good evening. I'm two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey. And when I dream, I don't just dream any old dream. No, sir. I dream about being three-time Golden Globe winner Tim Carey, because then I would be enough. It would finally be true. And I could stop this terrible search. And it was brilliant. He was being funny. It was tongue in cheek, but it was highly anthropological. He was making this commentary on this search that everybody's kind of in. And when we don't rest in the grace of the gospel, then we kind of baptize the terrible search. And we just kind of say, well, you know, I'm just doing this because it's all to God's glory after. You know, after all, and if I'm the best such-and-such such in the city, that glorifies God. Yeah. Okay, it's also driving you like crazy because you've put your identity in this thing. You see, the gospel of grace doesn't mean let's all be mediocre. The gospel of grace doesn't mean if you have a little kid who's in hockey and the kid says, I want to play in the NHL, you don't say, well, you know, grace says you don't have to, you, don't have to, you can score zero goals and it doesn't matter and whatever. It's a separation of identity and performance, Right. It's getting the kid to see, like, hey, listen, little Johnny, you want to play in the NHL? Knock yourself out, kid. That means get up at 4.30 in the morning. And you have to bring the crushing law of performance so that kid can make it to the NHL. That's fine. Great. That's how the world works. But the gospel is that while little Johnny is on the ice, missing shot after shot after shot, you're constantly getting little Johnny to know that apart from his performance, there's a God and a Father who loves him. That he can, he can hit every shot or miss every shot, and he's not adding anything to his value. And this is the battle that all of us as parents are in, right? This is the battle that all of us are in, you know, ourselves. So we've got to rest in this gospel, because the most natural thing for a worker to do, who's not in management, is to you know have this inner jealousy and resentment. And this is what Paul's kind of getting at when he says to the to the workers, this is how you're supposed to relate. You relate to your masters like you would to Christ, not with eye service. You know, you don't you don't smile and nod and give corporal. Hip- you know, cordial, you know, yes, yes, cordial hypocrisy while they're there, and, and, and then when they leave, you wrap, you know, with your work cellophane, and you send them down, the, you send them down, the, you know, the conveyor belt, you know, this is why Paul's giving this, because it's very natural to be like, you know, oh, you think you're better than me, and all of these other inward things that are, the break room banter, you know, the every, every office has break room banter, you know, but it's also the most natural thing in terms of our sinful nature for the management to look at their higher position and think that means that they've got uh, a higher value and to say, well, I'm going to maintain my superiority by relating to you like with constant inferiority and then that feeds my complex because I'm, I'm a big important person. This is natural, uh, you know, sinful nature. And so Paul says uh, to, the, to those that are the workers, he says in verse 5, you know, you're supposed to serve with fear and trembling. That doesn't mean be afraid and, you know, horrific, slavish terror. It means that it was an idiom that meant, you know, with care and concern for your duty. And so you work in that way. In verse 6, he gives a new motivation for the work ethic. He basically says, the company doesn't own you. Christ owns you. And then he turns and he flips it on the masters and he says, and you don't own them. Christ owns you and them. And he's leveling the ground. He's leveling the ground, the way of relating, the compassion, the respect, the dignity and again, he's, he's, not writing, he's not writing for Monday morning at the workforce, he's writing to the church. Because all of these cultural paradigms make their way into the church. It's natural. So he's writing and saying, how do we relate to one another with a sense of respect and dignity and love and empathy and compassion, and not on the basis of kind of where we are on the social scale when we leave Redeemer, right? Oh, this person's a really important person in the church because they're a business owner. Who cares? Oh, this person's not important at all because, you know, um, they have a very lowly position uh, for the city. Who cares? This is what Paul is saying. He's saying we're relating to each other on, a, on a, far higher, uh, a far higher scale here. And so then when he gets to verse 8, he talks about being rewarded. He's not erasing the first three chapters. You notice there, if you look at verse 8, he says, hey, God's going to reward you. Whether you're a bondservant, whether you're free, it doesn't matter. He's talking about these rewards. And our North American mind wants to go, aha, see, Rewards. There's the Jesus rewards, and then there's whatever I do on top of that. It's kind of like Jesus' work at the cross was the Sunday, but everything I do keeps adding toppings. Okay, so if that's your theology, I would strongly and lovingly encourage you to throw it all away and start over. Okay, because we're not adding to Christ. You know, if you think that something that you do on Monday morning at the workplace is somehow like, oh, and ding, you know, on top of a bloody cross, you know, I was nice to my worker in the break room, (laughs) ding. No, just... Please throw that away. What Paul is saying here is, there is a reward that's already assured that's in chapters one through three, and now you're going to be rewarded, chapters one through three, based on the work of Christ, chapters one through three. So now you're free to relate to one another, and God's going to reward it, whether you're the owner or the master, whether you're the sir, whether you're the CEO or you're cleaning the bathrooms. It's not relevant. It's freedom freedom of removing our identity from our work and latching it onto that bloody cross of Christ this is what he's doing and that's why in verse 9 he says to the masters he flips it and you notice most of these verses that i that i just read to you they're about the servants and then he just has a little one liner for the master well, it makes sense because there weren't very many masters right so when he does give the little one liner to the master cuz the church is mainly workers he goes oh and by the way do the same read it He's like, oh, by the way, and you relate. You, you likewise, you relate to those that work for you the same way. And he just gives this radical equality that's nowhere to be found in the Greco-Roman world, this radical equality, because the gospel is the great equalizer. In Christ, we're all alive, and without him, we're all dead. The gospel changes everything. It changes absolutely everything, because Jesus was the Lord of all, And then he became the servant of all. And when Jesus became the servant of all, his identity was intact the entire time. His value before the Father was intact the entire time. In Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1, Isaiah has a vision and he says, I saw the Lord and the the train of his robe filled the temple. And then in John chapter 13, that same Lord whose robe filled the temple disrobed and washed his disciples' feet. And his identity was intact the entire time. We have a Lord who became the servant. We have, we have a strong God becoming weak to save the weak so that we can, we can have the strong God. This is the picture that we get. This is why the grace of Christ is not just the entrance into Christian faith, it's the power by which we lived out. Church, I'm going to close with this. You are loved, you are forgiven, you are free. You are free from sin. You are free from getting your validation in the position that you have in this city. You are free. The cross of Christ frees you from that. Life is short, Life is not all there is and God's validation of you means that death itself will not hold you and you live in that freedom. God's grace severs your identity from your work and it unites it to Christ so that your work is from freedom to God's glory. It is not a burden to establish your glory. Let's pray.